When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who, when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith, declared, I could not be shaken. Welcome back, everybody. In Alma 30, we talked about Korihor, this ultimate antichrist in the Book of Mormon. And by the end of the chapter, he has met an ignominious end, not at the hands of the Zoramites, but rather at their feet. And it's the Zoramites that we'll spend our time with now in chapter 31. Now, to teach Alma 31, I wish I could do it the way one of my beloved early morning seminary teachers did back in California where I grew up. Our teacher was Sister Buman the mother of one of my best friends, this short little lady that had raised a huge family of her own and now was raising the rest of the kids in the ward. She usually came across as pretty straight-laced, but she had a trick up her sleeve for Alma 31 that took all of us by surprise. Now, there was a guy in our class whose name was Corky. I don't know if that was his real name or just what he went by. And he was a little bit older than me and my circle of friends, so I never really knew him well. But he was his own character. Kind of did his own thing, didn't care what people thought, was kind of quirky. Maybe that's where the name came from, I don't know. But he kept things interesting, let's just put it that way. Now for Sister Buman's sake, or at least for the sake of the object lesson she was trying to teach, it's a good thing that Corky was in that class. Because she could get him to do anything weird and we wouldn't have seen it coming. We just would have thought, oh, that's just quirky. Well, on one particular morning for early morning seminary, we show up at the church at 6.30 a.m. And we're going to be studying Alma 31. Now, none of us knew what was in that chapter. And we sing our opening hymn. It's time for the opening prayer. And Sister Buman, just nonchalantly, kept the poker face the whole time. She said, oh, Corky, would you mind offering the opening prayer? And he's like, oh, sure. So he gets up and he starts walking to the front of the classroom as we begin to fold our arms and bow our heads. Well, we didn't bow our heads and keep our eyes closed because instead of just walking to the front of the room and turning around to bow his own head, Corky climbed up on the table at the front of the classroom. And we're going, what? And then he proceeded to stretch his arms heavenward and begin his prayer by saying, holy, holy God. And we're up there. I mean, anybody who had folded their arms and bowed their heads just shot it up going, what the heck is going on? And Corky proceeded to perform the Ramiumptum prayer. Every time I read Alma 31 now, I can just picture Corky up at the front of the classroom winning an Oscar for this incredible performance. We had no idea what was going on. We just thought, whoa, Corky's lost it. He finally, he finally snapped. It was the most epic opening prayer I had ever had. And boy, did it get our attention and make us ready to study the rest of this chapter. Once Sister Buman let us know, oh, well, what Corky did was just what we're going to see here in Alma chapter 31. Personally, in my own teaching, I'm not a big believer in epic object lessons, but boy, that one was memorable. 
Rather than start chapter 31 today with verse 1, I want to start with the prayer itself that was offered. And as we begin to study it, keep in mind what Jesus said about praying in the Sermon on the Mount. He warned against hypocrites that would stand on street corners or in synagogues to be seen of men. Oh, they'll have their reward. Sounds like you were praying to the crowd. Well, hopefully they can offer you whatever it was that you needed, because that's where your reward will come from as opposed to entering into your closet and addressing your father in secret, who will then reward thee openly. Actually, it reminds me of a story told by early apostle George A. Smith, who shared this memory he had of his cousin, Joseph Smith. He said, I recollect a gentleman who came from Canada and who had been a Methodist and had always been in the habit of praying to a God who had no ears and as a matter of course, had to shout and halloo pretty loud to make him hear. George A. Smith was a pretty hilarious guy himself. He had a personality almost as big as his waistline. And uh, you can kind of sense this as he talks. He continues, Father Johnson asked him to pray in their family worship in the evening. And he got on such a high key and hallooed so loud that he alarmed the whole village. Among others, Joseph came running out saying, What's the matter? I thought by the noise that the heavens and the earth were coming together and said to the man, that he ought not to give way to such an enthusiastic spirit and bray so much like a jackass. Now, who knows if that's exactly what Joseph said or if that's how George A. interprets it. Anyway, because Joseph said that, the poor man put back to Canada and apostatized. He thought he would not pray to a God who did not want to be screamed at with all one's might. Well, that's how conference talks sounded in the 1800s, right? But it is interesting, the sense of, do we not know that God hears? Do we think we have to yell at him? Or is it not heaven's ears that we're after? Are we praying to be seen of men instead? In our prayers, who are we talking to? The apostate Zoramites, they didn't seem to be talking to God at all, though they claimed to be. Theirs is a perfect example of wanting to be seen and heard of men. In fact, in verse 13, when it first starts talking about this, it says there was a place built up in the center of their synagogue, a place for standing. No need to kneel. Let's stand. I'd hate for anybody not to be able to see me. See, even in studies of posture and body language, or even in classes on public speaking, they talk about the things we do with our body often determines how we feel about ourselves. And extending yourself, making yourself larger, actually makes you feel bigger than you did before. It's why in moments of excitement, when our team wins or something, we make ourselves large. One professional public speaker even suggested to others that before you go on stage, go into the bathroom and just extend yourself. Make yourself as big as you can. You'll feel great confidence as you go on stage. Meanwhile, how are we typically taught to pray? To kneel, to fold, to bow, in other words, to make ourselves as small as possible, because that posture makes us feel smaller. There is a, a reverence there, a humility before God. So from the start, this is a place to stand, feel big. The place was high, high above the head. Architecturally speaking, there's a lot that can be said of vertical space, cathedral ceilings, high vaulted domes, anything that makes you want to look up, to lift the eyes heavenward. Spires do that on the outside of buildings. Large interior spaces do the same within. 
churches, chapels, cathedrals, mosques, synagogues, so often use those kinds of architectural elements to lift worshipers heavenward. But it's people looking up to God, not people looking up to other people. And yet here, that's what's happening. Let's put this stand high above the head so people will see me, look up to me as I am praying. And depending on what I do with my own head while I pray, I can look down on them as I do so. One last detail in 13. The top thereof would only admit one person. You see, you don't have to share the spotlight with anybody. This is all about me. Separated from the congregation. I'm not praying on their behalf. It's only me up here. Verse 21 is where we see its name. It was called Ramiumptum, which being interpreted is the holy stand. Well, holy would be a stretch. The first three letters in that word, Ram, does mean high or exalted in Hebrew. So that's another good indication of its elevation above everything else. My wife and I, by the way, talk about ramiumptums in our house all the time. It's a place where people keep stacking their clothes and not wanting to put anything away, and it just keeps getting higher and higher and higher. We seem to have ramiumptum problems in our house all the time, but, it, but not in the prayer realm. Well, before we get to specifically what they say up there, before Corky begins his prayer from the table up front, think about the table itself. Think about the height of this structure. Does it ring any bells? Two things that perhaps come to mind. One is King Benjamin's tower. This would be the counterfeit of King Benjamin's tower. Why did he build his? Actually, come to think of it, King Noah had a tower too. And King Noah's tower was a counterfeit of King Benjamin's tower. So King Noah's tower is probably a lot more closer fit for this holy stand also. King Noah climbed his tower to survey his dominion, to see, look at all that I am over. That's what's happening here, as opposed to a King Benjamin, who on the day-to-day -day was down on the ground with his people, serving them, working for his own support. The tower was only to be able to extend God's message to all of them. It's about them. To connect them to heaven through the words that he was delivering. One other high and elevated piece of construction would be the Tower of Babel in the Old Testament which I think is another powerful parallel to the Ramiumptum here in Alma 31. What was the Tower of Babel for? This was a shortcut to heaven. Are there easier ways to get there than living the gospel? In their case, their lives were not holy to the point of the people of the city of Enoch that were caught up to heaven. Well, let's just build our way there. Nor did they want to be as righteous or repentant as Noah and his posterity were meant to be after the flood. And since the unrepentant perished in those floodwaters, well, let's build a tower high enough to outlast God's punishment. That was one of the goals of the Tower of Babel, supposedly, as well. So let's reach heaven without righteousness and avoid punishment without repentance. Let's find the easy way out either way. Similar issues going on here among these apostate Zoramites on their holy stand. Now in 14, whosoever desired to worship must go forth and stand upon the top thereof. They must. There's no other way or form or place or manner to do it. 
and they stretched forth their hands towards heaven, and they cried with a loud voice. I mean, you've got to make sure everybody can hear you, right? Brain like a donkey. Well, what did they say? Verse 15, it actually sounds pretty good to start, other than the volume. Holy, holy God. Jesus did pray to his Father, hallowed be thy name. But that's not what's happening here. They're not hallowing God. As we'll soon see, they are hallowing themselves, setting themselves above everyone else. They're simply using God as the hook by which to pull themselves higher than their brethren. They say in 15, we believe that thou art God. We've swung the pendulum from what we saw in chapter 30. Korahor saying there is no God. Well, now these apostate Zoramites saying, proclaiming loudly, oh, there is one. And yet neither group is trying to be like God. Both atheism and theism can be devoid of true discipleship. In some ways, Lucifer doesn't care if you believe or don't believe, as long as you don't live like God, as long as you don't really know him. Now, one of the amazing things about this Ramiumptum prayer is it seems to cobble together in one incredible passage almost all the false doctrines you can see throughout the history of apostate Christianity. It's almost like this is a mosaic of lost truth, tiny pieces all put together into one coherent picture. You really start to see that in the middle of verse 15. We believe thou art holy, so far so good, and that thou wast a spirit, and that thou art a spirit, and that thou wilt be a spirit forever. Now within the creeds of Christendom, I think this one specifically is the Westminster Confession, it declares that God is a God without body, parts, or passions. A God that is pure spirit, only spirit. I recognize that Jesus says in John chapter 4 that God is a spirit, but so are you and I. We are a spirit and a body put together into a soul. And the Father and the Son are souls likewise, with spirit and body together. Jesus was not trying to explain the nature of God to the woman at the well. They were talking about the nature of true worship, which had to be spirit-filled, as opposed to purely physical, which is what she was after as far as physical location was concerned. Jesus is trying to pull the pendulum back towards spirituality in our worship, not defining ontologically the nature of God. But that's what the creeds were doing later, and defining God as only spirit rather than spirit and body, permanently united. You see, it's even interesting to ponder that phrase, a God without body, parts, or passions. If he has no passions, no feelings, now, I know what they're trying to get across there. He is an impassable being. Perfection would require him to be unchanging, immovable, as Greek philosophy would suggest. That's why he's often called the unmoved mover. He moves everything else, but didn't have to be moved at all himself and couldn't possibly be moved by us. But if he's immovable, if he's impassable, if there's no passions, is there no love? Is there no feeling? The scriptures do not describe a God without passions. I mean, obviously in our scripture, Moses 7, for example, God is a God who weeps. There's passion, there's feeling. But you see God's feelings throughout the Old and New Testament as well. It's like Hebrews when it talks about a high priest that cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. That's not Jesus. And by extension, that's not God either. God does have passions. And he does have parts 
because God has a body. Now, are we making too big a deal of this? I don't think so. I mean, doctrines like the resurrection suggest this kind of physicality, this corporeal God. Jesus made a point of it several times post-resurrection. This comes, handle me and see. A spirit doesn't have flesh and bone as you see me have. He makes a point of eating with the apostles after the resurrection. So nice of him, by the way. Seems to suggest that even when we're resurrected and don't necessarily need to eat, at least we still can. That's nice. You see, like I said, it's Greek philosophy that suggests that having any kind of physicality is lowering God in some way. Well, if that's the case, then what's the point of the incarnation? The doctrine that the Word was made flesh, that Jesus entered the world. It was that physical side joined to his spiritual side that allowed him to perform the atonement. That was Son of Mary and Son of God. With no flesh, where is the resurrection? Where is the atonement? Where is the condescension of God? Where is the incarnation of Christ? This is important doctrine. And Joseph clarified it beautifully in section 130, that the Father and Son have bodies as tangible as man's. Now in verse 16, the prayer continues, Holy God, we believe that thou hast separated us from our brethren. Now, Christianity has a long history of separatism. Maybe, again, that's one of the reasons that the top of the stand would only admit one person. Separatism throughout Christian history was this attempt to be different from the rest of the world. So far, so good. But when we talk about being in the world but not of the world, they only seem to hear the second half. We're not going to be of the world at all. In early, early Christianity, you meet what they call the desert fathers, these ascetics that would go out. Some were even called stylites, where they would build some kind of a tower, similar to this, and just stay on top of it, spend their lives there as the paragon of holiness, untouched by the world below. They would lower a basket down to get food occasionally or things. They'd live in the wilderness, in the desert, hence the desert fathers in caves somewhere. Monasteries were often built in the most remote possible locations to separate people from the world. Now again, the the good side of that is we are not of the world. But what's the flip side? But you're not even in it. What kind of a difference can you make when you're not in the world to make the difference there? This is too close to every man for himself solo spirituality instead of a household of faith, fellow citizens with the saints. In your attempt to isolate and concentrate on vertical spirituality, you have completely cut yourself off from horizontal spirituality, which is equally important. You're only living the first great commandment. You have completely abdicated responsibility for the second. Love my neighbor? (laughs) Don't have any. It's just me and God. That's why when people say, oh, I'm, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual, I think, well, that's easy. Disconnect with God. I mean, he's perfect. Don't have to rub shoulders with anybody and have the chips on my shoulder worked off as a result. The early Puritans that came to the United States were separatists. That's why they chose not to stay back in England and try to purify the Anglican church as originally planned. It's like, nope, they're a lost cause. And so every man for himself... We're heading to a new world to usher in a new age. 
but we cannot be a part of them at all. Even when they got here, the separatists, many wanted to separate from the less committed among them. And so they'd have these churches of gathered saints of the so-called visible elect, people that could prove in some way that we are part of God's chosen. And that's who will constitute the church. The rest, good luck, you're on your own. Now, there's even a time in church history where there was that sense of separatism. We've been kicked around so many places, so many years, leaving state after state after state on the heels of persecution, that by the time we got to Utah, it was a, we're not in the world and we're not of it. We don't have anything to do with it. Kind of secure in our mountain fortress. Some of that was necessary, but it also led to some interesting problems. Not just problems with incoming neighbors, the Mormons versus Gentiles has its own history, but even problems within ourselves. Separatism can lead to overzealousness. It can lead to judgmentalness of anyone on the outside. It can lead to hypocrisy on the inside. It was like, well, I want to be the best of the best among the best. At least in the past, I had worldlings to compare myself to. Well, now, here we're all separate saints. I want to even be separate from among them. And there's no real way to do that. And I understand why we had to pass through our separatist phase, but I'm glad we're no longer in it and haven't been for a long, long time. Latter-day Saints, continue to choose not to be of the world, but go be in it. There are no Mormon monasteries, and there's a reason for that. Go be in the world so you can make a difference. We have not been separated from our brethren. Keep going in 16. We do not believe in the tradition of our brethren, which was handed down to them by the childishness of their fathers. This sounds a little like what Korahor said in the previous chapter. This foolishness, this silliness, this childishness. But there's also an anti-traditionalism here that I think we see in the history of Christianity, particularly post-Protestantism, which chose to reject much of what preceded it. Now, there were a lot of ancient traditions that needed to be protested against. But beware of rejecting all things that come before. A present that cuts itself off completely from its past will have a difficult time finding its way into a future. The next pray, and this might be the most obvious parallel to what we see in Christian history. They pray, we believe that thou hast elected us to be thy holy children. Which they repeat in verse 17 when they say, thou hast elected us that we shall be saved. And then add, whilst all around us are elected to be cast by thy wrath down to hell. You see, in 16, we see hints of predestination. And in 17, we see the hint of double predestination. You see, predestination, from a Calvinist perspective, was that God has already chosen, before anything, independent of anything we've done or haven't done, God has chosen who is saved. Double predestination adds the second part, and God has already chosen who has been damned also. I've always wondered, well, logically, if God knows who's been saved, isn't that kind of everybody else then? Is, is there really such a thing as single predestination? If these are the ones that are in, doesn't everyone else end up being on the out? Maybe. But the double predestination makes it clear. We're finally going to admit it. God has chosen group A for salvation and chosen group B for condemnation. Again, independent of anything they've done or haven't done. If you're in group A, you cannot fall into group B. And if you're in group B, you cannot repent your way into group A. Sorry. 
It's okay. God is sovereign. God knows all. God is going to just do what God does. But boy, does that have the potential to dampen down discipleship. If I'm in, I'm in. Or if I'm out, I'm out. Then what's the point of even trying? In fact, what often tended to be the point of trying was to convince your neighbors which group you were in. We can believe in divine omniscience. We can believe in foreordination without having to believe in predestination as far as salvation is concerned, and much less double predestination as far as both salvation and damnation are concerned. Even that sense of election, not just for salvation, but as he said in 16, elected us to be thy holy children. There is, again, maybe that's part of that separatism, but there's definitely a sense of superiority. We might call it ethnocentricity or tribalism, that our group is God's favorite and God doesn't care about anybody else. Now, before we completely reject that thought, don't we believe in chosen people? Don't we believe, aren't we okay with Genesis when God chooses Abraham and he says, in thee and in thy seed? And this is house of Israel, right? We're Latter-day Saints, a chosen people. Isn't that what God says to Moses at Mount Sinai? A peculiar people, which doesn't mean weird, though that often applies to us as well, but peculiar as in mine, I've chosen you, a holy nation, a kingdom of priests. Mine, I've placed my name upon you. I will be your God. You will be my people. There's a lot of that possessiveness, especially throughout the Old Testament. Jesus starts breaking down those walls in the New Testament with the woman at the well and the Samaritans and so forth. But there's still even some of those lines of division, even in Jesus's ministry. Doesn't the Doctrine and Covenants begin saying this is the only true and living church upon the face of the earth? This kind of goes back to what we said about in the world and not of the world. Of the world is important. But it gets a little weird when it's uncoupled from the other half of, yeah, go be in it, though. Make a difference. And being a chosen people gets a little weird when it's uncoupled from its other half, which is, and then choose everybody else to be chosen with you. Isn't that what he first said to Abraham when this whole chosen thing started? In thee and in thy seed, there's the chosenness, shall all the families of the earth be blessed. That's the choosingness. See, chosen and now choosing. Elder Bednar taught this beautifully when he was brand new apostle. That is the seed of Abraham. It's our job to go gather the rest of the family home. He's only chosen us to give us responsibility to choose everybody else. There's this exclusivity slash inclusivity balance. My students will laugh because I quote this all the time. My favorite statement from Joseph Smith, by proving contraries, truth is made manifest. You take these opposites, opposite goods and force them to come together. It's a paradox. Justice and mercy, faith and works, in the world but not of the world, exclusivity and inclusivity, chosen and choosing, it has to come together. If you have elected us to be thy holy children, and he loves all of his children too. So go help them become holy as well. Bring them into the covenant. Why do you think Latter-day Saints do so much missionary work and so much temple work? In thee and in thy seed, exclusivity, shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Radical inclusivity. No one left out of that redeeming reach. Now in 17, thou art the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's good doctrine unless we end up limiting God's methods to achieve his unchanging goals. 
then that would be a perversion or a counterfeit of that unchangeableness. Then there's the double predestination. And then they say, For the which holiness, O God, we thank thee. We also thank thee that thou hast elected us, that we may not be led away after the foolish traditions of our brethren, which doth bind them down. So we're grateful that you've chosen us to not be like everybody else. Again, there's this distinction that wants to stay distinct, this chosenness that doesn't want to choose anybody else. And then we see the two things that we saw back in Alma 30 with Korahor, the blame and the belittling coming side by side. Led away after the foolish traditions, that's the belittling, the minimizing, these dumb things. Can you believe people are stupid enough to follow those traditions? Which doth bind them. That's the blame. That's the work of them up. That's the maximize, the demonize. These horribly authoritarian leaders. Those foolish traditions, those binding beliefs, they end up leading their hearts to wander far from thee, our God. Makes you start wondering which God they're talking to. And they close in 18. Again, we thank thee, O God that we are a chosen and a holy people. Amen. For all the times they mention God, this sure does seem to be a prayer about them. We're separate. We're better. We're higher. We're chosen. We're elect. We're saved. And if that's not clear enough, everyone else is childish. They're foolish. They're bound down. They're elected to be cast into hell. What do you expect from the unchosen? You get a sense of this pride this holier-than-thou kind of attitude. It's scary when we see that creep into LDS culture. It's not supposed to be there. But squeezed within all that sense of superiority are two phrases that I conveniently skipped over. And yet they just might be the most important parts of this prayer. The end of verse 16, Thou hast made it known unto us that there shall be no Christ. And then at the end of 17, what foolish tradition were they bound down to? To a belief of Christ. Remember the first thing we learned about Korahor in Alma 30? Forefront of our minds before we start losing sight of it through the rest of his false doctrine? It's that he was anti-Christ. Same is true here. Do not lose sight that this prayer is anti-Christ. In what way? Christ didn't do things to put himself high above everyone else. Christ didn't limit his love or attention to one person. Christ is not spirit alone. He was word made flesh. Christ was not a separatist, but brought even lepers and publicans and sinners back into the family of faith. His was not a narrowly confined election, but a love for every single son and daughter of God. A command to go and teach all nations. Jesus seemed to try to puncture the sense of superiority that his people felt almost every chance that he had. Jesus chose everybody and just wanted to help them choose him and more importantly choose his father as well. By the way, you'd think that that phrase that there should be no Christ, would be one exception to the idea that so much of this is a conglomeration of apostate Christianity. However, sadly, that one applies as well. Notice they didn't say, there shall be no Jesus. They simply said, there shall be no Christ. Well, what's the difference? 
a big one if you're in academic circles, where they tend to distinguish between what they call the historical Jesus and the so-called Christ of faith. Even in putting it in those terms, it seems to suggest that, oh, well, the Christ of faith, that's just kind of what we've invented in the church. Whereas the historical Jesus, that's this wandering, itinerant Jewish preacher. Pure humanity, no divinity, nothing supernatural here. Not so unenlightened and unscientific. But what have they done? By separating the historical Jesus from the Christ of faith. Rather than recognizing, as we legitimately can, the two sides of him. Cultural context, yes, but divine inheritance as well. Palestinian Jew, excellent, hold on to that. But divine son of the eternal God, don't lose your grip on that. Hold these two together, prove the contraries. Jesus himself is this contrary of humanity and divinity. There have been Christian heresies throughout early Christianity that separated the two and picked one at the expense of the other. Both sides existed. But if I had to pick the more common heresy today, especially in academia, it is studying the historical Jesus at the expense of the living Christ. Beware of a Christianity without a Christ, with only a Jesus to talk about. Now that's the prayer. That's the only prayer. That's the prayer that you must offer at the top of that holy stand. In verse 20, every man did go forth and offer up these same prayers. Now we get vain repetitions, which aren't just limited to praying. There can be vain repetitions in our prayers, yes, but also vain repetitions in our testimony. Do we say the same thing every time? Kind of wrote, memorized, this is how it's supposed to be done. Are there vain repetitions in our talks? We say the same thing without regaining a testimony of the principles that we are teaching again. Is there vain repetition in our scripture study? Vain or vanity in terms of, I want people to see that I'm doing this, or vain vanity in terms of, this isn't doing anything. I'm not getting anything out of it. Vain repetitions in our temple attendance, in our service of others, in serving in our callings, you name it. Vanity, either sense of the term, is a possibility in any of those spots. One other thing to see in verse 22. From this stand, they did offer up every man the selfsame prayer unto God. We already saw that. Thanking their God that they were chosen of him. It's just a review of what we've already seen. That he did not lead them away after the tradition of their brethren. So glad we're not Nephites. We used to be, but we apostatize. I'm so glad that their hearts were not stolen away. And in this phrase, to believe in things to come which they knew nothing about. Sound like the epistemological challenges we saw in Korahor's address? How could you possibly know those things? Specifically, those things to come? They have eliminated the possibility of the gift of prophecy. That puts blinders on. Only the present matters. Why even worry about the future? If we're already elected to be saved, then who cares? We don't have to worry about the future. Future is taken care of. Why is there a need for a Christ? I'm in. You can sense some Nehor doctrine here, right? Some Korahor doctrine, some Amulon doctrine, some Amlicide doctrine. Who needs the gifts of prophecy for that? And who wants the gifts of prophecy for now, like we saw with Korahor? If you can foretell about the future, then you have the right to foretell about the present. And I don't want you to tell me what to do. I want to be able to live however I want to live. This denial of the gift of prophecy, though, 
I also wonder, does it suggest a denial of spiritual gifts in general? Which we'll see later at the end of the Book of Mormon is a good sign that faith has disappeared from these people. Now, I said before and gave a few examples of proving contraries. And I think one of the fascinating things to see in this Ramayamtam prayer is that these are all examples of unproven contraries. That's why you see elements of some truth there, because there is a half that's true, but it becomes false when it's uncoupled from its other half. A virtue uncoupled from its contrary virtue becomes a vice. And you see it throughout this prayer. It's looking up, but not looking out. The vertical dimension without the horizontal dimension. It is individuality without community. It is uniformity, it has to be this way, without flexibility, the chance to adjust to local circumstances or individual needs. It is unity without diversity, which can be just as dangerous as diversity without any unity. It is spirit without body. It is confidence without humility, exclusivity, unconnected to inclusivity chosenness but not choosingness, innovation without tradition, maturity without innocence. There's the childishness they were accusing the others of. Election without expansion, formality without feeling, repetition without reawakening. In instance after instance, be aware of the good things that we're doing, but keep an eye to the potential blind spot of what's the other half, the other positive that would keep this positive from becoming negative. So please don't sit back and go pat ourselves on the back thinking, ha, ah, if this is a conglomeration of apostate Christianity, well, here we are in restored Christianity. We don't have any of those problems. We have the potential to have just about all of those problems if we hold to one half of a truth at the exclusion of the other half. Our own Latter-day Saint tendency towards isolationism or exclusivity should be warnings of just how easy it could be for any of us to climb a ramiumptum of our own. It may be one man at a time, but believe me, there's room up there for everyone. We just have to choose not to ascend. Unfortunately, the Zoramites did choose to ascend. And how did they get there? Go back a bit. 31.8, now the Zoramites were dissenters from the Nephites. That's their first step up the holy stand, a step away from the people of God. They dissented from the Nephites. Therefore, they had had the word of God preached unto them. Maybe that explains the half of each contrary that they held on to. There was so much truth in what they said because they had had the truth in its fullness before. Unfortunately, they started letting go of second halves of all of these pairs of things as part of their dissension from the Nephites. So if their ascent up to that pinnacle of pride was brought about by their dissension from the Nephites, well, what brought about their dissension? Look at the next verse, verse 9. They had fallen into great errors, that's for sure. For they would not observe to keep the commandments of God and his statutes according to the law of Moses. Remember the beginning of chapter 30? 
It explains the peace that prevailed in Zarahemla at the time. They did observe to keep the commandments of the Lord, and they were strict in observing the ordinances of God. Well, that didn't last long among this group of dissenters. Maybe that's what got some people to listen to Korahor and fall prey to his false doctrine. Maybe that's part of what brought these Zoramites to dissent from the Nephites to begin with. They're not obeying the commandments of God. We could call this sins of commission. That's the telestial level of living. But then add it to verse 10, neither would they observe the performances of the church to continue in prayer and supplication to God daily that they might not enter into temptation. You see, a lot of their sins of commission were brought about because of their sins of omission. And if they'd avoided these sins of omission, sounds like they would have had the spiritual strength to resist the temptation to these sins of commission. It was both wickedness in verse 9, not observing the commandments of God, and what we would call inactivity in verse 10, not observing the performances of the church. I hope we also see in that pair of verses why we do those performances in the church. Part of the reason why we pray and supplicate God, why we do things daily so that we don't enter into temptation. Verse 10 is the terrestrial level of living. It's not bad things I'm doing, that's telestial. That's verse 9. It's good things I'm not doing, that's terrestrial. That's verse 10. And often our fall from the celestial level, which is what the Nephites were trying to maintain, is passing through the terrestrial and on to the telestial. Giving up the good things before we fall into the bad things. Even that didn't seem to be the beginning, though. I think we can trace this thread even earlier. Go back and look at verse 3. Now the Zoramites had gathered themselves together in a land which they called Antionum, which was east of the land of Zarahemla, which lay nearly bordering upon the seashore, which was south of the land of Jershon, which also bordered upon the wilderness south, which wilderness was full of the Lamanites. I don't think we need to worry about most of that geography, but the detail at the end, they were right along that border, the edge of the kingdom, right next to a wilderness that was full of Lamanites. Is it starting to make a little more sense why there would be dissenters here? Elder Maxwell used to talk about people that would prefer church members, but that would prefer to sit on the porch rather than inside the chapel. I want to be part of the kingdom, but can I be on the edge? Sometimes we want to be those fringe members. They're on the borders, closer to the wilderness, the, our wild side, even though that wilderness is full of the enemies of God. I think that was their first mistake. Second, verse 4, the Nephites greatly feared that the Zoramites would enter into a correspondence with the Lamanites and that it would be the means of great loss on the part of the Nephites. You see, if you start with closeness, typically you end up with correspondence. Peter Berger, a great non-LDS sociologist of religion, used to say that our realities hang by the thin thread of conversation. In other words, your reality, how you view the world, is going to be based in large part on the people that you are in conversation with, which is why we need to watch who our conversation partners are. First and foremost, are we speaking with God? Is He a frequent conversation partner? No wonder we engage in prayer and supplication to Him daily, which they had stopped doing. So no vertical conversations, very infrequent correspondence with heaven. 
They're at the borders of the land of the Nephites, close to the wilderness swarming with Lamanites. So not much horizontal communication with Nephites, perhaps. Instead, let's open up the correspondence to the Lamanites. Let's let them be our conversation partners. No wonder their spiritual reality is changing. That thin thread binding them to God and his people became so threadbare that it broke. So beware of becoming a borderland or borderline member whose correspondence partners tend to be doubters more than believers. Now, they haven't lost everything. Like we saw in the prayer, there's half-truths running throughout. And in fact, verse 12, they had built synagogues. They gathered themselves together one day a week, which day they did call the day of the Lord, and they worshiped. Looks good on paper, right? The problem is, as we saw in the prayer, that this is an external religiosity, devoid of an internal spirituality. This is formalism rather than real faith. They draw near me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They've built a synagogue, but are they becoming saintly? They designate a day of the Lord, but are they using that day to fully come unto him? In fact, in verse 23, speaking of that day, says that after the people had all offered up thanks after this manner, they returned to their homes, never speaking of their God again, until they had assembled themselves together again to the holy stand to offer up thanks after their manner. You see, I know the Sabbath is supposed to be a different day, a day set apart to give to God. But if we make it so distinct that none of it can spill out into the rest of the week, then that's a problem. It's one thing not to want all the other days to spill into the Sabbath, but to refuse to allow the Sabbath to spill into other days, that is a problem we need to avoid. These are Sunday-only saints confining their commitments to God to that one day in seven. You see there's a, a compartmentalization going on. Nope. The, the day of the Lord is the one day that I think about him, talk about him, pray to him, any of this kinds of stuff. And you can tell it's not very heartfelt because it's so easily confined to that one day. Don't compartmentalize your commitment or covenant to Christ. Let it affect everything. That's why we stand as a witness of God at all times, in all things, in all places where we might be. It almost makes it seem that this has just become cultural norm for them. This is what we do. It's what everybody does. Unthinking, we just go to the synagogue one day a week. We all take turns climbing the same holy stand, saying the same vain, repetitious words. Go home afterwards and don't let it cross our minds or affect our thoughts for the next seven days until we got to go back and do it again the following week. This is what it looks like when religion becomes your culture instead of your covenant. I loved my years living in the Bible Belt, and I saw both committed Christianity and cultural Christianity. People who went to church because they loved it, and people who went to church because it's the South, and that's just what everybody does. First restaurant I went to when I was house hunting, and the manager comes out and asked, y'all found yourselves at church yet? That's just what everybody does. It's part of the, it's beautiful. There are some negatives of Southern culture, but one of the great positives of Southern culture is how religious people want to be. But some of that is cultural Christianity. Can we say the same thing about Utah? 
and I'm not trying to bash Utah, but there is a danger when church and culture coincide. There's great benefits to it, but there are grave dangers. And if we become merely cultural Latter-day Saints instead of covenant Latter-day Saints, then we've lost something. If we go to church because everybody goes to church, if we go on missions because all my friends are going on missions, if I climb the holy stand because it's my turn and I say the same words because that's what everybody says, but it doesn't affect the rest of your life, that's usually how you can tell when it's just cultural. That's the danger when Christianity becomes merely cultural. One other telling detail, verse 24, they were a wicked and a perverse people. Yea, he saw that their hearts were set upon gold and upon silver and upon all manner of fine goods. Yea, and he also saw that their hearts were lifted up unto great boasting in their pride. Well, go figure. You make a prayer like that every week, week after week, unchanging, and yeah, you're going to feel pretty good about yourself. Better than all these unelect people beneath me. But I do wonder which was chicken and which was egg. Did they become prideful because of prayers like that? Or did they begin praying like that because of pride? And what was the relationship between their pride and their materialism, their greed, their worldliness? You remember those who believed in Korahor's doctrine in chapter 30? Gave themselves up to commit many whoredoms? There's the lusts of the flesh temptation. Well, here we now see the pride temptation and the materialism temptation. All three that Jesus faced and overcame in Matthew chapter 4. Well, what's Alma going to do about this? In chapter 30, we saw round after round after round of Korahor's false doctrine. And then we got to see what's Ammon going to do about it? What's Gadona going to do about it? What's Alma going to do about it? Well, here now in 31, we've seen all of the wickedness, unproven contraries among these dissenting Nephites, these Zoramites. Well, what is Alma going to do about that? Let's go back to the beginning. Verse 1, came to pass that after the end of Korahor, we're on from one challenge to the next, Alma, having received tidings that the Zoramites were perverting the ways of the Lord, great word, to pervert things, to make a perversion of them. It's not what it was intended to be. That's something dissenters are so good at because they had the truth. Now let's just tweak it a little bit. The Zoramites were perverting the ways of the Lord. Zoram, who was their leader, was leading the hearts of the people to bow down to dumb idols. I love that he calls them dumb in the same verse that he just stops talking about Korahor, who was struck dumb. Why would you listen to something that cannot speak? Why would you raise your voice to honor something that has no voice to raise? These are dumb idols. And his response when he sees it, as high priest over all of this, his heart again began to sicken because of the iniquity of the people. Strong word, to be sickened by something. This kind of pit in your stomach, I can't believe this is happening. In verse 2, it was the cause of great sorrow to Alma to know of iniquity among his people. Therefore, his heart was exceedingly sorrowful because of the separation of the Zoramites from the Nephites. Every time someone perverts truth, every time someone dissents from the church, anytime someone separates themselves from the family of God, I hope it sickens us and fills us with sorrow. 
to the point of wanting to help. Not sickened by the person. This is not, this is not disgust here. This is not disappointment. This is just sorrow. I care about these people. What can I do for them? We see similar feelings after he goes. That's what motivates them to leave in the first place. We see it again in verse 24. After he's been there and watched this cycle of Ramiumptum prayers, when Alma saw this, his heart was grieved. So sickened, sorrowful, grieved. He actually pours out that grief to the Lord in this beautiful prayer that we'll study in a moment. But three verses worth seeing in it now about the specific sins that are grieving him so deeply. Verse 27, he prays, Behold, O God, they cry unto thee, and yet their hearts are swallowed up in their pride. Behold, O God, they cry unto thee with their mouths while they are puffed up even to greatness with the vain things of the world. It's almost like he's saying, Heavenly Father, how can they cry unto thee when pride is getting in their way? How can they turn their hearts to thee when their hearts are swallowed up in themselves? Then in 27 and through 28, it's worldliness. The other challenge that he's seen in them. Behold, O God, they cry unto thee with their mouths, while they are puffed up even to greatness with the vain things of the world. This is pride morphing into worldliness. 28, Behold, O my God, their costly apparel, their ringlets, their bracelets, their ornaments of gold, all their precious things which they've ornamented with. And behold, their hearts are set upon them, and yet they cry unto thee. And say, We thank thee, O God, for we are a chosen people unto thee, while others shall perish. How can they speak to thee through their pride? Verse 27. How can they speak to thee through their worldliness and materialism? 27 and 28. And then 30. O Lord God, how long wilt thou suffer that such wickedness and infidelity shall be among this people? There's the other of the three temptations. The wickedness, the infidelity, the physical appetite, the lust of the flesh. How can they call upon thee through all of that? Interesting word, infidelity, by the way. We usually associate that with adultery. But what is another word for that? Unfaithfulness. Infidelity is just another way of saying unfaithfulness. And if adultery is being unfaithful to one's spouse, well, covenant infidelity is being unfaithful to God. These are all things that are devastating to Alma. And so what could they possibly do? Well, back the page. Verse 5 presents the first of two answers. And now, as the preaching of the word had a great tendency, not an unconditional guarantee, but a great tendency, there's no better way to do it than this, to lead the people to do that which was just. Yea, it had had more powerful effect upon the minds of the people than the sword or anything else which had happened unto them. Just ask the anti-Nephi-Lehi's about that. Therefore, Alma thought it was expedient that they should try the virtue of the word of God. Just try it. There's no guarantee. There was never a guarantee when we went to Ammonihah. Not when the sons of Mosiah went on their mission to the Lamanites. Remember, perhaps they might bring some soul unto God. Well, there's no guarantee that this will happen either, but there is no greater tendency than to watch the Word work its miracles in the human heart. There is nothing with more powerful effect. In the beginning was the Word. So start there. 
try its virtue, which means its power, its strength. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Fast forward to chapter 32, plant the seed. That's where plants begin and the seed is God's word. Just try. Preach to them. Share them the gospel. Bear them your testimony. Try the virtue of the word of God. Who did he bring with him on this mission? Verse 6, he took Ammon, good choice, Aaron, and Omner. Himni he left in the church in Zarahemla. That doesn't mean Himni was a bad missionary. I wish that we had a full account of everyone's missionary journeys among the Lamanites. We got a good story from Ammon with Lamoni, an amazing story from Aaron and Lamoni's dad. But they were there for 14 years. I'm sure there were a lot of other stories that could have been told. And we didn't get anything from Omner and Himni. I doubt they were just hiding out or hanging out for that whole time. But perhaps Himni's gifts were more church administration. Who knows the reason? But Himni was left behind to help supervise the church at home. But the former three he took, he also took Amulek, his old trusty mission companion, and Zeezrom, their former enemy but newfound friend. And he took two of his sons. The oldest he left in Zarahemla with Himni. That's Helaman for you. Again, no spiritual slacker there. But he took with him Shiblon and Corianton, who we'll meet in a couple of weeks. Notice, by the way, with the exception of Shiblon and Corianton, who we don't know yet, but will know soon, every single person he took with him on this mission were former apostates slash dissenters slash wicked people. Amulek, who knew but would not know. Zeezrom, who was trying to set a trap for the people of God. Alma himself and the three sons of Mosiah that he took with them, all part of this group of hellraisers that was trying to destroy the church before. Talk about a well-matched group of missionaries for this particular group of people. Oh, fight against the church? Been there, done that. Didn't want to hear God's voice? Uh-huh, I qualify. Full of false doctrine and vanity and pride? Oh, yeah. We all qualify. It's amazing that God can even take a problematic past and consecrate it to the building up of his kingdom. It's one of those beauty from ashes examples of alchemy that God is so good at. I'll even take your sins. And once repented of, we'll turn them into strengths. I'll take your apostasy and turn it into opportunity to make a difference in people that are like you used to be. Help them change by showing them that you did. So the word, as preached by people who had been changed by it themselves, is the first key that they will use. The other is in verse 26, where Alma begins to pray. I love that right after we see the Ramiumptum prayer, we see Alma's prayer. Stand those up next to each other side by side. And it is amazing to see the pride on one side juxtaposed with the humility on the other. The self-centeredness of the Ramiumptum prayer with the concern for others that characterizes Alma's petition. I shared that quote from George A. Smith about Joseph chastising the man that was praying like a brain donkey. Well, let me share this example of Joseph praying from one who was there to see it, a member named Daniel Tyler. This happened during the Kirtland apostasy, speaking of dissenters from the church, right? Brother Tyler said this, 
At the time William Smith and others rebelled against the prophet at Kirtland, I attended a meeting where Joseph presided. Entering the schoolhouse a little before the meeting opened and gazing upon the man of God, I perceived sadness in his countenance and tears trickling down his cheeks. Remember in Alma 31, it is sorrow and grief that is moving Alma. A few moments later, a hymn was sung and he opened the meeting by prayer. Instead of facing the audience, however, he turned his back and bowed upon his knees facing the wall. This, I suppose, was done to hide his sorrow and tears. So Joseph isn't praying to be seen of man. He's not climbing the Ramiumptum. He's turning his back on the congregation so he can focus on the one he really hopes will hear. I had heard men and women pray, Brother Tyler says, from the most ignorant, both as to letters and intellect, to the most learned and eloquent. But never until then had I heard a man address his maker as though he was present, listening as a kind father would listen to the sorrows of a dutiful child. Joseph was at that time unlearned, but that prayer, which was to a considerable extent in behalf of those who accused him of having gone astray and fallen into sin, was that the Lord would forgive them and open their eyes that they might see aright. That prayer, I say to my humble mind, partook of the learning and eloquence of heaven. There was no ostentation, no raising of the voice as by enthusiasm, but a plain conversational tone as a man would address a present friend. It appeared to me as though, in case the veil were taken away, I could see the Lord standing facing his humblest of all servants I had ever seen. It was the crowning of all the prayers I ever heard. And what Brother Tyler said of the Prophet Joseph, I think we'll be able to say of the Prophet Alma, as you read his words from verse 26 through verse 35. We saw 27, 28, 30, Alma pour out his heart over the wickedness that he was seeing. He started in 26 by saying, Oh, how long, O Lord, wilt thou suffer that thy servants shall dwell here below in the flesh to behold such gross wickedness among the children of men. Sounds a little like Enoch in the book of Moses, or even like the earth itself groaning over the wickedness upon her face. He listed that wickedness, but the saddest of all is 29, which I didn't read already. They say that thou hast made it known unto them that there shall be no Christ. How devastating that they would pit the Father against the Son and make of God an antichrist to put in the Father's mouth anything spoken against the only begotten. Having explained to God what God already knew, the situation that Alma was facing, he begins asking for the blessings that he knew that he and his companions would need. It's a pretty good list. I remember as a missionary getting my packing list. Here's all the things you're going to need as a missionary. You can kind of get a sense of what you're in for based on what you're supposed to bring with you. Well, Alma had a sense of what he was in for. And so notice what he asks for, beginning in the middle of verse 30. O Lord, wilt thou give me strength? Why? To convince these apostates of his power? No. Strength that I may bear with mine infirmities. I'm not even asking to be spared those infirmities. I'm simply asking to have the strength to endure them well. For I am infirm 
and such wickedness among this people doth pain my soul. It sickened him, it saddened him, it grieved him, it pained him. And I think the same would be true of God. Verse 31, O Lord, my heart is exceedingly sorrowful. Wilt thou comfort my soul in Christ? It's the second thing he asks for. Going through what I'm going to go through, the infirmities and sorrows I will face, wilt thou give me strength to endure them and comfort through them all? Comfort in Christ. O Lord, wilt thou grant unto me that I may have strength, second time he's asked for it, that I may suffer with patience these afflictions, which shall come upon me, he has no doubt, because of the iniquity of this people. The iniquities will be on their part, but the suffering will be on mine. Sound a little like Jesus? This is atoning empathy translated into the experience of a mortal missionary. I will feel pain because of their sins. My pain will not atone for those iniquities, but perhaps it will at least motivate me to preach to them the message of him who has atoned for their sins. 32, O Lord, wilt thou comfort, there's that petition again, comfort my soul and give unto me success. Please, Father, let there be a harvest. This isn't just about us checking boxes or going through motions or trying to make ourselves feel better because at least we tried. No, we need to win. We need to succeed at this. And also my fellow servants who are with me. So none of these are meant just for me alone. This is not a selfish prayer. So bless Ammon and bless Aaron, bless Omner, bless Amulek, bless Zeezrom, bless my two sons. Yea, even all these wilt thou comfort, O Lord? Yea, wilt thou comfort their souls in Christ? Four times already he's asked for comfort. My missionary packing list had a shocking number of white shirts and ties, letting me know just how often I would need that wardrobe. Well, to need this much comfort, do we know how hard it is to work for the salvation of others, especially those who have wandered away from things that they used to know and believe? Verse 33, Wilt thou grant unto them that they may have strength. I prayed for strength for myself. I pray for strength for them. And for the same reasons, that they may bear their afflictions, which shall come upon them because of the iniquities of this people. Verse 32 and 33 are almost repeats of verse 30 and 31. Recognizing I'm not the only one that will need these blessings. Please give them to my companions as well. Verse 34 then, O Lord, wilt thou grant unto us that we may have success a repeat of his petition of that earlier, success in bringing them again unto thee in Christ. That's the third time he's prayed that these blessings of comfort and strength and success would come in Christ. That's the only way they really can come. Verse 35, behold, O Lord, their souls are precious. That's why it's sorrow that motivates me instead of anger. And many of them are our brethren. They've dissented from us. Therefore, give unto us, O Lord, power and wisdom that we may bring these, our brethren, again unto thee. The strength and the patience and the comfort are going to be because our mission is so hard. But the power and the wisdom must come because their hearts are so hard. We need your power 
to cut through that hard-heartedness. We need your wisdom to be able to know what we can possibly say. They know the gospel. At least they did at one point. They'll know just where to poke holes in things. So often the work of reactivation is so much more difficult or more delicate than the work of conversion even. Maybe that's why we tend to give up on it so easily. But if we recognize that their souls are precious, then we can pray for the power and wisdom that we will need to know what to say and to have the courage and strength to say it. Now, that is a beautiful prayer. So selfless, so specific. Heavenly Father, these are the things I know that we will need to succeed in the mission thou has given us, which is what makes verse 36 so fascinating to me. Now, it came to pass that when Alma had said these words, that he clapped his hands upon all them who were with him. And behold, as he clapped his hands upon them, here's where the gift comes in that he'd asked for. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, wait a minute. The gift that he'd asked for, that was nowhere on the list. He asked for strength twice. He asked for patience once. He asked for comfort, what, four times? He asked for success twice. He asked for power and wisdom. He never asked for the Holy Spirit. Or did he? God didn't give him anything he asked for. Or did he? Perhaps in that one gift, he gave to these missionaries all the things that they had asked for. It is the Spirit of God that gives us strength to endure our afflictions. It's the Spirit of God that gives us patience through our trials. It's the Spirit of God that comforts us in infirmity. He is the comforter after all. It's the Spirit that infuses us with God's power and inspires us with God's wisdom. It is the Spirit that brings success and ensures that that is success in Christ. You probably all know this famous statement from Parley P. Pratt. The gift of the Holy Spirit adapts itself to all these organs or attributes. It quickens all the intellectual faculties, increases, enlarges, expands, and purifies all the natural passions and affections, and adapts them by the gift of wisdom to their lawful use. It inspires, develops, cultivates, and matures all the fine-toned sympathies, joys, tastes, kindred feelings, and affections of our nature. It inspires virtue, kindness, goodness, tenderness, gentleness, and charity. It develops beauty of person, form, and features. It tends to health, vigor, animation, and social feeling. It develops and invigorates all the faculties of the physical and intellectual man. It strengthens, invigorates, and gives tone to the nerves. In short, it is, as it were, marrow to the bone, joy to the heart, light to the eyes, music to the ears, and life to the whole being. If you were to draw out all of the gifts one could ask for in that quote, you've got a list far longer than what Alma prayed for. And yet, they're all included in the gift that God gave them. Those are the two things that stand the greatest chance to change people. The power of the word. Try it. It's the most powerful, the greatest tendency. And the Spirit of God with all the strength and patience and comfort and power and wisdom 
and success that it brings. In the armor of God, everything seems to be defensive, things to protect ourselves, except one offensive item, the only weapon included in that armor, and it's the sword. The sword of what? Combine Ephesians 6 and Doctrine and Covenants 27, and you get the sword of the Spirit and the Word of God. Alma and his companions are going among the Zoramites, fully armed, with the one thing that will make a difference, the sword of God, his word, his spirit, quick and powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword, to the dividing asunder of joint and marrow. Try these things. Trust these things. Verse 37 they separated themselves one from another. They took no thought for themselves what they should eat or what they should drink or what they should put on. The people with all their concern for costly apparel and bracelets and ornaments, these missionaries don't care at all what they'll wear, what they'll eat, what they'll drink. God will provide. The Lord provided for them that they should hunger not, neither should they thirst. Yea, he also gave them strength like they'd asked that they should suffer no manner of afflictions, save it were swallowed up, as asked, in the joy of Christ. The Spirit softened every blow, swallowed up every affliction, and replaced that sickness and pain and grief and sorrow with joy, joy in Jesus Christ. This was according to the prayer of Alma and this because he prayed in faith. May we pray. May we pray in faith. May we sense the preciousness of the souls that we can reach, even those souls we don't think we ever will be able to. Try the virtue of the Word of God. Plead for the power of the Spirit. Give people a chance. More will come home than we might think. And best of all, both you and they We'll find joy in Christ through that process.